it uh, may come as a surprise to some of you that I am a class A complainer. I'm sure that doesn't surprise you at all. Uh, if you are like me, uh, you may discover that it doesn't take you much effort at all to find things to complain and whine about most of the time, but that it does actually take quite a lot of effort to be thankful most of the time. Why is it so difficult for us when we are asked what we are thankful for, why is it so difficult to come up with things besides uh, the obvious things like, well, I'm, I'm thankful that my health is good. I'm thankful uh, that I have family and friends who love me. I'm thankful for work that I enjoy and earns me a living. Could it be that we tend to view thankfulness as a feeling that comes and goes depending on our circumstances rather than an experience that we can always be experiencing in Christ. This world seeks to tell us that our ungratefulness, our complaining, our whining, our unthankfulness can be justified. But is it true? Uh, if ever there was a man who would have been justified in not being thankful, it would have been Paul here in the circumstances in which he found himself when he wrote the letter of Colossians. If you remember last week, we did an introductory overview to this book, and we reminded ourselves that as Paul is writing this letter, he is writing this letter in prison. He's been imprisoned for no other reason that, than that he has been faithfully proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, and he is suffering for serving Jesus. And even in that context, we may think, uh, how would he start his letter? He might talk about the bad things that are happening to him and how he's suffering. We may actually be surprised to discover how he begins his letter. Take a look at verse 3. This is how Paul, writing from prison, begins his letter. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul begins this letter with a note of thankfulness. He was able to look beyond his own circumstances, beyond himself, to the things that God was doing and he could find his thankfulness there. When he looked at God and God's work, he found plenty in God to be thankful for. And Paul, by his example this morning, as we look at these verses, verses three through eight, he is going to teach us how we can always find fuel for our thankfulness in the spiritual blessings that God pours out on his people. What were the spiritual blessings that Paul found his thankfulness in? Let's take a look at verses 3 to 8. Let me read these verses for us. Chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, 
since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul, in these verses, points out three different spiritual blessings that can fuel our thankfulness to God. If you're an underliner in your Bible, you may just want to underline three key words contained in verses 4 and 5. You may want to underline first in verse 4 the word faith. And you may also want to underline in verse 4 the word love. And then in verse 5, you might want to underline the word hope, faith love and hope. These are words that are popularly used today. Often we hear them in a different order. We often hear them faith, hope, and love. Uh, If you walk into people's homes, you may just see decorations that have faith, hope, and love written on them, though I think today it's more popular to have live, laugh, and love. Uh, But These characteristics are found time and time again in the New Testament. If you went through uh, the adult Bible fellowship class that Dale Mort taught very recently, he talked about these themes of faith, hope, and love contained all throughout the New Testament letters. And they're known as really kind of apostolic shorthand for the characteristics of genuine Christians, that genuine Christians are those who possess the characteristics of faith, hope, and love. But Paul, here in these verses, he takes a look at those characteristics that were true of the Colossians, and he traces the source of them back to God himself. He sees that these are spiritual blessings that God has bestowed upon the Colossians, and he finds his thankfulness in these spiritual blessings that God has poured out. What was the first spiritual blessing that Paul found fueled his thankfulness to God despite his circumstances? First, he mentions the spiritual blessing of faith in Christ Jesus. Take a look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, We always thank God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This is the first spiritual blessing that he mentions out of the three because faith is the foundational characteristic of a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has faith. Now, we all, every single one of us here this morning, every single person in the world has faith in all sorts of different things and all sorts of different people that we place our trust in to meet our needs. Uh, And we hear faith talked a lot about today. We hear people say things like, don't lose your faith, or I have faith that everything's going to be okay. Or others say, you got to have faith in yourself. It's even prevalent in our day to have faith in faith itself, as if faith was some kind of magical power that could overcome all of our problems. But Paul is careful to make the note that he thanks God for their faith in Christ Jesus. God seeks and is pleased with a particular kind of faith. In fact, the Bible doesn't even just call us to kind of a nebulous faith in God in general. After all, who is God according to Paul? If you take a look at verse 3, in verse 3, who is God? He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you are going to know God, you have to know him through the person of Jesus. Jesus himself taught us this in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is faith in Jesus that is the only faith that pleases God because it is only through Jesus that we can relate to God. But notice, Paul, in these verses, who does he thank, their, who does he thank for their faith? Notice, he doesn't thank the Colossians for their faith. Paul thanks God for their faith. It really is their faith. But he knows that it is a work that God has wrought, a spiritual blessing that he has bestowed on the Colossians. Paul knew better than anyone else, even from his own conversion, that whoever is actively placing their faith in Jesus Christ is doing so by a miracle of God's power in their lives. God is the one who draws people to faith in Christ Jesus. And so he thanks God for their faith. Isn't this what Jesus taught us? Again, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, verse 44, he makes this bold statement. Jesus himself saying, no one can come to me. No one can place their faith in me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Paul rejoiced in the Colossians' faith because he knew that the message of Christ is a message that is naturally resisted by the unbeliever. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, what's our message? We preach Christ crucified. And what is that message to the unbelieving world? It's a stumbling block to Jews, uh, Jews who couldn't bring themselves to uh, comprehend a Messiah who would be uh, crucified on a cross, a cursed death. And it's folly to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. Uh, who would ever think that God could be a man and that uh, this man would raise from the dead? And Paul rejoices because he sees how God has penetrated unbelief and the natural sinful heart and has drawn these Colossians to himself in a saving faith in Christ. Friends, we look at the world around us. There is plenty to discourage us. There's plenty to dishearten us. The news feeds our constant discouragement. But we can always find thankfulness in the things that don't make the news. The fact that every single day, despite the darkness of our world, despite the turmoil of our world, God is saving people. He is drawing people to faith in Christ. Could it be that one of the reasons that we get cranky as Christians is because we don't stop and consider the wonder it is that anyone is a Christian. God doesn't have to save anybody. But by his amazing grace and mercy and love, he chooses to pour his salvation out upon people and bring them to faith. And when we see people turning to faith in Christ Jesus, it should cause us, just like the Colossians, to want to live out our faith in a way that is worthy of being reported. 
I just imagine Epaphras, the Colossians pastor, uh, going to visit Paul in prison and saying to Paul, Paul, you just, you wouldn't um, imagine the faith of these Colossian Christians, the faith, the solid faith they have in Christ. The first spiritual blessing that fueled Paul's thankfulness despite his circumstances was first faith in Christ Jesus. The second spiritual blessing that fueled Paul's thankfulness despite his circumstances was love, love for all the saints. Take a look again at verse 4. Verse 4, he moves on to mention the love that you have for all the saints. Uh, this past Christmas, my father-in-law gifted Hannah and me a membership to Costco. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. We're just drowning in toilet paper. It's, uh, it's great. But those of you who are Costco members, you know when you walk into Costco, what are the employees at the door checking to make sure that you truly are a bona fide member who's allowed to shop there? Your Costco card. You have to show that you really are a member by proving it with your membership card. No card, no entry. Love for other Christians is like the membership card of a Christian. It's like the Costco membership card of Christianity. It is the observable proof that we really are genuine believers in Jesus. Jesus teaches us this in John chapter 13 when he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you have love for one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice again, though, that Paul thanks God for their love. In fact, he traces the love that they have for their fellow believers in verse 8 to the work of the Spirit. Take a look at verse 8. He talks about how Epaphras has made known to them your love in the Spirit. When we see love being generated in a church for one another, we can be sure that it is the Holy Spirit of God that is at work in that church family. I think about it this way. If you have the spirit of Christ, you will love the bride of Christ, his people, the church. If you have the spirit of Christ, you will love the bride of Christ. There is so much at stake in our love for one another here at Grace Church at Willow Valley. In any church, there is so much at stake in our love for one another. Francis Schaeffer wrote back in the 1970s, I made the mistake in the first service of saying way back in the 1970s, <laughs> he, he wrote these strong, powerful words about that commandment that Jesus uh, said in John 13 that we just looked at, that by this all the world will know you are my disciples if you have love. Francis Schaeffer wrote these challenging words when he said, our love will not be perfect, but it must be substantial enough for the world to be able to observe. If the world does not observe this love among true Christians, the world has the right to make the awful judgment that we are not Christians. Friends, I've spent time this week just thinking of all the reasons that we have to thank God for the love that is so evident here at Grace Church. 
You know, there are so many things that we as pastors are privileged to see behind the scenes. Uh, examples of love for one another that doesn't get aired because it doesn't happen in the, the programs and the ministries and the events, but stuff that only God could produce in our lives. Uh, I was thinking this week of uh, two members of ours who recently got placed on a meal train uh, with our church because they were going through a hard time, and their next door neighbor is an unbeliever. And they noticed that every day there were people coming to their door and dropping stuff off. And so they, they asked their neighbor, they said, um, who are all these visitors that keep stopping by your house? And our, our dear brother and sister said, oh, that's our church family. We're, we're going through a bit of a, a rough patch and they just want to make sure that we don't have to cook for ourselves during this season. And so they're dropping off food. That neighbor was stupefied that there would be a group of people who would love each other like that. We have younger people here in our church who are picking up seniors every Sunday who can no longer drive so that they can make sure that those seniors are able to go to church. Uh, stories of uh, people here who are a little bit further down the road in their walk of faith who hear about a new convert in our church and they just by their own volition go up and bring their arm around them and say, hey, can we start meeting for coffee and just study the Bible and get to know one another and pray for each other? Recently, there was a couple who had a very traumatic event happen in their lives. And on the one-year anniversary of that traumatic event, their life group threw them a special dinner to let them know that they love them and they support them. Very recently, a life group here celebrated the birthday of one of their life group members, and she just began to break down and cry as they uh, sang happy birthday and showed a candle, or uh, had a cake. And it came to, to their knowledge that she had not had a birthday cake baked for her in quite a, a few years. There's a dear sister in our church who goes every single Sunday after the service to one of our shut-ins who is recently widowed to share with her our sermon or her sermon notes so that she didn't miss out on the sermon for the week. Guys, it's stuff like that that makes my heart rejoice. I'm happy when our events go well, our ministries are thriving, we have good numbers. But that sort of stuff is the real stuff that makes my heart rejoice. Because that stuff can't be manufactured. That is God's work that we ought to be thankful for here in our church family. Our love for one another is a part of our Christian witness, and it is a powerful defense of the truthfulness of the gospel, that the gospel has power to transform a community of people into a community of love. And that's why one of our core values here at Grace is Christ's church, let's see if you can finish it, our family, one of you, excellent. Uh, Christ's church, our family. We are not just a community that comes together and receives Bible teaching and sings songs, but we are a family of brothers and sisters. We are a community of love. And I would encourage you, if you find yourself on the fringes of the fellowship life here at Grace Church, or if you're new here and, and you still don't quite know what's going on, get involved in the community here at Grace. Uh, Pastor Caleb He's going to get married soon, so we're going to give him some time. But in the coming weeks and months, he's looking at our life group ministries and how we can generate new groups so that more people can get into small groups and create those loving relationships. 
Pick a ministry in our church that interests you and just start to love the people who serve alongside you in that ministry. Or most practically, on a Sunday morning, don't rush out the door. Stay. Talk to each other. Get to know one another. These relationships in a church, they take time and it takes effort. But through patient time and effort, oh, we will be able to thank God for the love that we have one an, for one another, just as Paul was able to thank God for the Colossians' love. It is God's love that generates our love for one another. John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the sacrifice to atone for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the spiritual blessings that fueled Paul's thankfulness despite his circumstances were faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints, and lastly, he found fuel for his thankfulness despite his circumstances in hope laid up in heaven. Take a look at verse 5. He mentions that there, the, the hope laid up for you in heaven. In fact, you will notice that he says that their faith and their love stem from this hope that God has given them. He says in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Christians have a real and solid hope in this life, unlike any hope that the world offers us, because our hope is not in the world and not of the world, but outside of this world. Paul says it is laid up in heaven for us. Peter put it this way when he wrote in 1 Peter, he, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Jesus teaches us that we should live our lives with the ultimate hope of eternity in view, and not just hope in the things of this life. He taught us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. All of us have hopes for this life. Some of you are teenagers here this morning. You hope to go to your dream college, to enter into your dream career field. Some of you young adults that are here with us, you are hoping that that boy and that girl that will one day be your husband and wife will come into your life and that that would happen sooner than later. Uh, others of us hope that we'll be cured from our diagnosis or that uh, we'll have enough years to be able to see our grandchildren someday. Friends, what Jesus is showing us is that even if those hopes for this life don't come about and those hopes are dashed, we can be disheartened, we can be discouraged, but it doesn't affect our ultimate hope of eternity whatsoever. That hope, the hope of heaven, is something that is laid up and totally secure and can never ever be taken away. One of my favorite hymns is The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And it's a hymn that's supposed to be uh, sung on your deathbed. And the hymn writer has this great verse where he says, Christ, he is the fountain, the sweet, deep well of love. 
The streams of earth I've tasted, but more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean's fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. That is the hope that we have in God waiting for us in heaven. But, but, Paul goes on in the rest of these verses to make a crucial qualification about that hope of eternal life in heaven. A very important qualification that we cannot miss. This hope of heaven is not something that everybody enjoys. Hope of eternal life in heaven is not a free-for-all. God has designed it to be obtained only through a particular means. How do we obtain this hope? Take a look at verse 5 again. He talks about the hope of heaven. And he says, of this, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. It is only in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can obtain this hope of eternity in heaven. In fact, all of God's spiritual blessings are only given to us in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, we enjoy no hope of any spiritual blessings from God. They are designed only to come to us through the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? In verse 5, notice again, he calls the gospel the word of the truth. Down in verse 6, at the bottom of verse 6, he calls it the grace of God in truth. What is the gospel? The gospel is the saving power of God's grace to undeserving sinners in Jesus Christ. And this true message of how God's grace goes out to undeserving sinners is his power to save. Notice in verse 5, he talks about how this gospel, excuse me, verse 6, has come to you, he says. It was like an event when the gospel came, it came to them in power. God's power came to bear upon this ancient city of Colossae. Yes, it came through Epaphras as the messenger, but in a very real sense, it was God in his power coming upon them. Paul talks about how the gospel came in a similar way to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he said, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When the gospel goes out, it is God's saving power that is going out. And indeed, he says in verse 6, it is going out to the whole world bearing fruit and increasing. That's why he could say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is why here at Grace, one of our core values is the gospel, our passion. Like Paul, we do not want to be ashamed at all of the gospel. 
but we want to get on board being messengers for this saving message of God's power to, to go out, starting with our next door neighbor here in our own community and all the way to the ends of the earth. We want to get on board with God's saving message of the gospel going forth. God's spiritual blessings come only through the gospel. So that begs the question, how can we be sure this morning if indeed spiritual blessings of God come only through the gospel, we only can have hope for eternal life in and through the gospel, how can we be sure that we have embraced the gospel ourselves? Well, let's look at how Paul was sure that the Colossians themselves had embraced the gospel. How was he sure that the gospel truly had come to be embraced by them? Take a look again at verse 6. Verse 6, he said, they not only heard it, but they understood the grace of God in truth, just as they learned it from Epaphras. The gospel was not just a message that had come to them and they'd kind of let it be, but it was something that they understood was needful for them. They learned that it was necessary for their own sake. We can be sure that the gospel has been embraced by us when it is personally owned as God's truth for us. Uh, we have a dear brother uh, here at Grace who was saved in college uh, through a friend of his who was a believer. And he loved our dear brother enough to tell him one day, you know, you're not actually a Christian. And our dear brother was kind of taken back and a little offended and got a little self-defensive and said, what do you mean I'm not a Christian? I grew up going to church. All my family are Christians. What do you mean I'm not a Christian? And his friend said, friend, if you were a Christian, you would personally be following the Lord Jesus yourself. And I love you and you're my friend but I do not see that you are personally following Jesus as your Lord. And our brother discovered he was absolutely right. He'd thought because he'd been going to church all his life, because he'd been you know, sort of raised in a Christian atmosphere that he must be a Christian, but he realized he did not actually ever begin to personally follow Jesus as his Lord. John Stott writes these great words in his great book, Basic Christianity. He says, to believe certain facts about the person and work of Christ is a necessary preliminary, but true faith will translate such mental belief into a decisive act of trust. Intellectual conviction must lead to personal commitment. I used myself to think that because Jesus had died on the cross by some kind of rather mechanical transaction, the whole world had been put right with God. I remember how puzzled, even indignant I was when it was first suggested to me that I needed to appreciate Christ and his salvation for myself. I thank God that later he opened my eyes to see I must do more than acknowledge a savior more even than acknowledge that Christ Jesus was the Savior I needed. It was necessary to accept him as my Savior. Certainly the personal pronoun is prominent in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Oh God, you are my God. I hope each one of us here this morning can say that we truly have claimed the me-mine relationship to the gospel. That each one of us here can say, Jesus came and lived a perfect life for me. Jesus came and died on the cross for my sins, to pay for my debt that I owed to God. Jesus rose again from the dead so that my eternal life could be secure and that my newness of life through him could be had. Jesus ascended into heaven to intercede for me and to prepare a place for me. He is going to return again one day to come back for me, to take me to himself. This is the good news of the gospel, and it is a good news that is to be personally owned. And secondly, we can be sure that the gospel has been truly embraced when it produces ongoing transformation in our lives. This very briefly, and then we'll close. Take a look at verse 6. Verse 6, he was sure that the Colossians truly had embraced the gospel because, he says, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Surely Paul is hinting here at what he's going to go on to say when we get to chapter 2, about 15 years from now, um, when he talks about how uh, philosophy, worldly philosophy and false religion had creeped its way into the Colossian church uh, because they thought, oh, spiritual transformation can only come from other things that the gospel is just the way that we get saved, but then we've got to move on to other things. Paul is saying, no, the fundamental truths of the gospel are not only the truths that save, but they are also the truths that transform our lives into God-likeness. Do not follow those teachers who tell you that, you know, once you go through the door of the gospel and you're saved, then you move on to greener pastures, more exciting things. The gospel is not only the doorway to salvation, but it is also the pathway to ongoing transformation. That's why here at Grace, our vision statement is to see the lost saved and the saved transformed by the gospel. We don't know any other way to pursue salvation and transformation, but through the truth of the gospel. And it's that transformation that next week Paul's going to show us in the next verses. But we gotta wrap it up because my wife said she's working in the nursery this morning and I better not go along. <laughs> there is a thankfulness that we can have in this life that goes beyond our circumstances. As long as we try to find our thankfulness only in the things of this earth, thankfulness really will just be a feeling that comes and goes depending on what's going on in our lives. But if, like we sung, we turn our eyes to what God is doing, we look beyond our circumstances and this world and look at the work that God alone is doing that is spiritual and everlasting, we will find fuel for our thankfulness. And let's, as a church family, find our thankfulness in what Paul found his thankfulness in. Not in the number of people that are here on a Sunday or how well our ministries are going in terms of numbers and exciting events happening. Those things are good. 
let's look at what only God alone can accomplish. Drawing people to faith in Christ Jesus. Producing a love for one another that this world cannot explain. And giving us a hope that stands the test of time, a hope laid up for heaven, in heaven. May God cultivate in each one of our hearts the same thankfulness that Paul found in the spiritual blessings of God that come to us through the gospel. Let's pray.